So one of them was to, to accelerate asteroid mining. We, we were looking at a space commodities exchange to be backed by, you know, maybe Luxembourg, UAE, um, national governments. Um, that didn't find legs. Um, we looked at manufacturing semiconductors in orbit. We looked at um, organizing the first Olympic-scale sporting event in space. We had several different on-ramps to create an entertainment property. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, podcasters. I've got some great news. The Downlink Podcast is a winner, baby. On Sunday, it won a Defense Media Award. See the Downlink Podcast on Substack to read all about it. Now, for this episode, we have a real treat, a one-on-one interview with Daniel Faber. He's the co-founder and CEO of OrbitFab. But don't let the company's cute name fool you. OrbitFab is building in space what the U.S. Department of Homeland Security would identify as two of the 16 national critical infrastructures, chemicals and energy. But in this context, these infrastructures are for building and sustaining the space economy initially in Earth orbits. OrbitFab is building full-service fuel depots in space, complete with robotic attendants that are in the tradition of New Jersey gas stations where attendants come to your vehicle to pump the fuel. The company's mission is to eliminate single-use spacecraft, essentially to extend the life of spacecraft with in-space refueling. So say you've got a satellite that is functioning optimally, But after years of using its thrusters to raise its orbit or to dodge orbital debris, it's low on gas. And at that point, satellite operators have a choice to make. You can leave the satellite there to die and become an uncontrolled hazard to others operating on the same orbital plane, which is really not cool. Or if you have enough fuel, you can use your thrusters to get out of everyone's way by deorbiting the satellite so that it burns up in the atmosphere. Or if you're in geostationary orbit, you can lift your satellite up to what's called graveyard orbit, where it will be mothballed and no longer producing value. So the business case here is that if you can refuel, you can keep that satellite producing and get a better return on investment. In defense, maneuvering is essential for a variety of tactical Earth orbit missions, and logically, that will require even more fuel than commercial operations. So it's no wonder the U.S. Space Force, the Defense Innovation Unit, and the National Reconnaissance Office have all expressed interest in OrbitFab in the form of multi-million dollar contracts. It all started in 2018 in true Silicon Valley tradition. Daniel and OrbitFab's entry into the space economy started in a garage with the space equivalent of a gas cap. Here's our conversation. Hi, Daniel. It's great to have you on the Downlink Podcast. Thanks, Laura. Great to be here. Now, before we get into gas stations and refueling ports in space, take a moment and introduce yourself, the basics, like who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Uh, Yeah, my name's Daniel Faber. I'm the CEO of OrbitFab. Um, OrbitFab is the gas stations in space company. Uh, I 
grew up in Tasmania, Australia. I've lived in seven countries on four continents. Uh, finally moved to the US uh, about eight years ago. Became a US citizen just this year. Congratulations, great to have you. Thanks. So give me a snapshot of just exactly what your company Orbit Fab does. I mean, how many employees do you have and where is the work being done? And most importantly, how you see it breaking the mold. What exactly is it disrupting? Well, I described uh, Orbit Fab as the gas stations in space company. Uh, we refuel satellites in orbit. Um, we're building effectively the, the downstream oil and gas company, if you like, storing and delivering propellant. Um, we'd like in, in 20 years' time to be the midstream and downstream petrochemicals company, delivering all the chemical supplies that people will need for an expanding commercial economy. But right now, laser focused on delivering fuel. And what that means is we need a, a fueling interface for satellites. It didn't exist before. So we build gas caps for satellites. That's our core product. Uh, we have about uh, 60 people mostly in Colorado. We have a small office in the UK as well. Uh, and we're working with companies around the world and governments around the world to, to realize satellite refueling. Don't you have gas stations in space trademarked? We do have gas stations in space trademarked. I mean, we're not exactly selling gasoline. They're not stationary. We're not selling beef jerky and things. Um, so it wasn't a purely descriptive term. And the US patent office uh, and trademark office allowed us to, to trademark gas stations in space. <laughs> All right. You are a self-described Silicon Valley serial tech entrepreneur and an engineer. And as you hold a number of patents in space and mining, is it fair instead to perhaps call you a serial disruptor as well? You can call me that if you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is uh, my fourth serious startup company. I think I've started something like 20 companies on four continents. It's It's from non-profits to consulting companies and things, but four serious startups now. So how did you get into space then? I mean, and I'm asking this question in a particular way because unlike other sectors of which you have just mentioned, right, where a venture capitalist can see an exit or sale of a mature technology or company in three to five years, you know, in the space sector, that a company could take 10 years or more to mature enough to realize a return on investment, whether it's cash or sweat, right? So it's not quick money and not for the faint at heart. So why space? Well, if I go back to when I was at university and doing undergrad in Sydney, um, I was thinking about what I could do that would be good for the world, be good for humanity. Uh, and frankly, getting humans off of Earth was going to address a bunch of existential risks. It's probably the, the most beneficial thing that could happen to humanity and possibly to life uh, almost ever. And so why would I work on anything else? And uh, in Australia at the time, there was no space agency. Uh, there were no big aerospace companies. There was no vision that I could join. There was nobody who had a path or, or any way to solve this. So I decided I would have to do that myself. It would have to be driven by a profit incentive because if you want to expand into, into the solar system, if you want to settle space, then it's got to be driven by that profit motive. It can't be done by limited government budgets with limited government motives. And so I wrote down a list of industries I thought could pay for the first permanent jobs in space. Um, at the time, that list was tourism, mining, and space-based solar power. But I can do math, and in 1990s, space-based solar power didn't make sense. I couldn't see myself being a tour operator. So... I decided I would organize my career around asteroid mining and try and move that forward. So as 
because OrbitFab is not your first foray into commercial space, you're the CEO of Deep Space Technologies, which is that mining company you were just talking about. And it was a pioneer in focusing on developing asteroid mining and then also small sat production. Before being bought by Bradford Space in, 19, in 2019, what I'd really like to know though, are what lessons did you learn from that experience? Yeah, Deep Space Industries was a, a really interesting business. Um, our big hero audacious goal was asteroid mining. Uh, and by the time that we were starting Deep Space Industries, um, and not just myself, there are, there are a number of other co-founders, we'd all realized that... How many of there were you? There were 12. Wow. Don't do that. You wanted a lesson? Don't have 12 equally vested co-founders. Yeah, I could see that look on your face. That's, that is about the right reaction. Um, I'm picking my job off the floor for those in the audience. <laughs> um, yeah, 12 is kind of a lot. I mean... It was chaos. The board was dominated by people who were um, interested in asteroid mining but didn't know how to run startup companies, hadn't been involved in startup companies. Um, only two of the people, not including myself, were full-time at the start. I only joined full-time 18 months in. Um, but I was one of the equally vested co-founders, uh, which meant that the incentives weren't necessarily aligned with the people that were doing the work. Uh, yeah, lots of things there on, on how not to, to start a startup, to be honest. What would be number one after not having 12 co-founders? <laughs> um, a lot of things around choosing the right people, getting the right people uh, to get the company off the ground. And when I joined, like I said, 18 months after the company had been started, um, the business model can be summed up as bag a billionaire. We didn't bag a billionaire. Uh, we burnt through a bit of angel money. Um, so when I came in, I brought in a technology strategy and said, let's build products that we can sell in the here and now um, and, and change that strategy. And actually get some capital, like get liquid that you actually can, can own and show, show that you're an angel investor, that you have some value to, to, to add at least to their bank account. That's correct. We, we raised a little more money. We didn't, never raised a huge amount of money, but we made products that people wanted to buy. And you know, the, the strategy was build thrusters that can run off fuels that one day you can make from an asteroid. Because we'd realized as a, as a group, um, the first thing you'll get from an asteroid that's economically viable is going to be the volatiles to turn into propellant. It's not going to be the nickel or the platinum grade elements. The value of those is several thousand dollars per tonne of, of asteroid material. But the value of the volatiles as propellant is more than a million dollars per tonne. So it's a no-brainer that we should be going after propellant first. But there were no thrusters that could use the propellant you could get from an asteroid. And there were no market for the propellant in orbit. So we started at Deep Space Industries making the thrusters that could run on water, on hydrogen peroxide, on hydrocarbons. And that product line we then leveraged to become a prime contractor. Uh, we had the, the contract for Hawkeye 360 um, because we had a thruster. And so we had a strategy that would lead to us becoming our own customer for fuel and providing services and, and platforms for, uh, for our customers. And so that way we wouldn't disrupt the customer. So that was the strategy that we had. Um, now at OrbitFab, you can consider what we're doing is building the market for that propellant. Um, though that's never enough. A nice strategy and a vision is not enough. You have to confirm you're actually going to have customers. But that was, that was the, the strategic piece of, uh, of Deep Space Industries. So let's talk about OrbitFab. You know, last year you received a number of important contracts. Uh, first one in January, and this is 2022. It was from Astroscale. 
uh, which I don't know the dollar amount of. And then in March, AFWORKS awarded you a $12 million strategic funding increase and tactical funding increase, or STRAT-5 contract. Then another contract with U.S. Space Force for more than $13 million. And this year and just a few weeks ago, the Space Force uh, awarded Astroscale a $25 million contract in an other transaction authority for an on-orbit refueling vehicle prototype, which uses your company's technology. And there are more contracts going right back to 2018. Uh, that's the year, I believe, that Orbit Fab was formed. So. How did Orbit Fab start? I mean, I, I, I've, I've heard tales of a cocktail napkin for reals, but, you know, yeah. How did this begin? In a garage in Cupertino. Um, actually. Oh, you are so Silicon Valley. If, okay. you're, if you're familiar with Planet Labs, the same garage that Planet started in. Uh, if you know Chris Kemp from uh, um, Astra, he started his previous company, Nebula, in the same garage. This is some garage. It's a, it's a pretty in intense community uh, there and a, uh, a pretty creative group that, uh, that have come up with these on a, on a serial basis, I guess. Okay, so you're in this garage, what, hanging out? That refueling just pops into your mind, or I mean, <laughs> come on. Well, well, I was at Deep Space Industries and uh, trying to focus the company on the technology strategy. In this garage, we start. We rebooted the company when I joined the tech strategy in the garage, but okay. then moved it to NASA Ames campus uh, to the research park there. But then, because I was, I was trying to sell a tech tech company, and the board wanted me to be selling an asteroid mining company, and so. We separated at that point. Eventually, it was acquired by Bradford Space. Um, but I spent the following year working on four different business models. So one of them was to, to accelerate asteroid mining. We, we were looking at a space commodities exchange to be backed by you know, maybe Luxembourg, UAE, um, national governments. Um, that didn't find legs. Um, we looked at manufacturing semiconductors in orbit. We looked at um, organizing the first Olympic-scale sporting event in space. We had several different on-ramps to create an entertainment property. Oh, gosh, you've got to tell me at least, like, what one of the events was. I mean, was, are we talking, like, gymnastics here? or I mean... We did treatments of many different sports and how we would do that, and then on-ramps to those because the facilities... And Dragon hadn't even launched at the time. So we had to build entertainment properties in advance of the capabilities to get humans up there. Like, that, that would be another podcast. We'd have to do that later. But it sounds fascinating. Day, I didn't know how to sell entertainment content. And so I was working on the space commodities exchange idea and not getting traction with the governments, not because they weren't interested, they just go slow. Decided I would talk to the prospective customers for commodities and ask what it would be worth and, and try and understand how to make that delivery. And so it was the seventh or eighth conversation that I had with the prospective customer saying, what would be the marginal value? Like, what's the marginal revenue you would get from one extra kilogram of fuel? And seven or eight times in a row, the answer was over a million dollars. Now, I know we could launch fuel to low Earth orbit. If we cut a really good deal with the launch company, maybe $1,000 a kilo. To geo, eh, maybe 10, probably more like 20 or 30. But the gap between that and a million dollars per kilogram is incredible. That's a lot of That's profit. when I decided, like, this is an industry I know. This is a tech I can figure out. This is something I can make a huge impact on. So. We mothballed everything else. I turned down funding offers for Space Arena and went all in on OrbitFab. Okay, so let's not go too back far in time. And, and as I, I, I covered defense, you know, what are the deliverables for the defense contracts 
that were signed this year and last? I mean, they're all connected. Yeah, they, they are all connected. They're building a capability. Um, going back to when we started the company, we realized very quickly there was no fueling port that satellites could buy to enable them to be refueled on orbit. Nothing that fit a low-cost architecture for delivering fuel. No one was working on that specific problem. So we went and talked to a lot of companies, a lot of stakeholders, and designed a fueling port. Um, we did some tests on the space station. That was great. We learned some things. We learned some things to do. We learned some things not to do. Um, turned around then with our, our ideas and raised a seed round, built the first depot, launched that to orbit with our fueling port. And that was really important product development because while it passed range safety and uh, and it, it got good reviews from the people at the, the payload processing facility for you know, low drip, easy to use, etc. Uh, we also generated a list of about 30 requirements that we'd never been given before from people that we said, well, now it's flown, why don't you use it? They said, no, it's not designed for my mission. Here are the reasons why basically your design sucks. And anyone developing a product that is gold was so valuable. And these were coming from like government agencies, serious players, prime contractors. We got a very good list. We got beaten up on that and it was fantastic. We turned around in short order because we knew a lot of the problems were ready. But some of them were, we, were novel. We turned around a, a new design in short order and all of a sudden all the critics turned into champions because now we had their design. Now we'd met their requirements. They'd contributed to this. And that's what resulted in Space Force giving us a bunch more contracts and saying, get that design into test, get that to production. So they've paid for all the test on that. Uh, and then moving that into, now we want to do a, a depot to make the delivery. Now we want to build a fuel shuttle to make the delivery. And so we're under contract with DIU for the, the first delivery on commercial terms to deliver fuel in geostationary orbit in 2025. Let me just backtrack just a tiny little bit. You know, when you're talking about ports, and when we're talking about ports, we're talking about basically the location where fuel would be injected into the spacecraft, whether that be a space station or a satellite or something else, perhaps. Sure, it's basically a gas cap. Guess a gas cap. Could you describe what that gas cap looks like physically and what it's actually made of? Yeah, sure. Um, so... Fundamentally, it's, it's a combination of two things. One is a grapple fixture so that we can directly dock to the fueling port. You need to hold on tight because we're pumping sometimes high-pressure fuels through there. And so it needs to have a, a grapple, like a, a physical attachment anyway. We decided for a lowest-cost architecture, we should directly dock to that port, not have a robot arm because robot arms are expensive. And we're trying to reduce the cost. So it's, it's got a direct docking grapple with four fingers to grip around it. So the shape of the, of the passive side, the shape of the, the gas cap, is an octagon, but we only grab on four of the, of the eight sides. And we just cut the corners off, I guess. Uh, and then it's got two fluid ports in the middle. So you can do um, a monopropellant like hydrazine and a blowdown or pressurant gas or a purge gas so you can, you can pressurize the system. So there's, there's two fluids even though only one of them is the propellant. Um, or you could do a, a, a bipropellant system or what have you. So they're interchangeable fluid ports depending on uh, the type of propulsion system that you have. Now, I know that OrbitFab wants to build fueling stations, right? You have the trademark for gas stations in space. Yep. And I've seen the artist renditions. And you have these contracts with the Department of Defense. So when will that be a reality? And where will they or it? I mean, is it an it and then they? Where will they be located? 
Yeah, we we did a lot of modeling to understand where we should put them. Um, we so the the fueling ports are available now to to go on any satellite. Um, we we're producing them. Um, there are a drop in replacement for the valves that the satellites currently have to fill up on the ground in the first t- in the first time. Um, but these fueling ports allow them to to have the option for refueling in orbit. So it's it's a similar weight mass um, cost to uh, and well no power because it's it's passive um, to a, a fill drain port that they currently have. Um, well, once a once a spacecraft adopted that, we get to the question of well, where where do we put up our network of fuel depots and fuel um, shuttles? So the architecture is we have depots, big low cost tanks of fuel. The goal there is low dollars per kilogram to orbit. Right? We'll take advantage of any deal that we can get to get low cost of fuel to orbit for our customers, and then a fuel shuttle which grabs that fuel from the depot and delivers it to the customer. And that fuel shuttle has all the smarts and is able to to run the fuel back and forth. Uh, and so we, we built up a statistical model uh, of where historically satellites have been launched to, like where they are now, and what fuel they have and how quickly they use that fuel and when they might need refueling. Uh, and we also projected that into the future based on the best data we could find uh, about where spacecraft are going to be in the future and what their propellant demand is going to be. And we can update that every time a customer comes to us and say, all right, given that data, where is the best place to put a network of depots and shuttles. And so it's constantly changing answer. But right now we'll have uh, fuel shuttles and depots geostationary orbit, of course, uh, but also in four different inclinations in low-Earth orbit. And what about cislunar? I mean, are you thinking about Lagrange points? We get asked about that occasionally, but the demand is being driven by GEO and LEO much more than cislunar, or we also get asked about a mid-Earth orbit. Um, And so at the moment we're not going into cislunar or MEO, but we will in the future. You know, fuel is valuable. Getting it up there is a value proposition about how much money it's going to take to to send these things up there. Do you have any concerns about fueling station security? I mean, having ready fuel available is a commodity. And so how will you actually mine the store? Yeah, and just like any other satellite, we, we monitor it through a, a telemetry system, through radio, um, so we know where it is and we can track it. Um, we're mindful that there's debris in orbit that we need to avoid. And so um, being a, a responsible community member, we, all, we make sure that we can do debris avoidance maneuvers. Um, we engage with companies that are tracking debris and effectively providing space traffic control. Um, we also provide some shielding around our uh, our depots so that they're not easily punctured by the smallest pieces of debris, which are which are hard to track. Um, and then we look to engage some of the new services from the satellite servicing companies. That there are now companies building effectively tow trucks in space. Um, when we started, there were seven or eight of them, and we thought they'd be great customers. Now there are over 150 companies working on these tow truck in space type business models, and. Um, we want to be their customer as well. So if we have a failure, we would like to have our equipment either removed from orbit or ideally in the future taken for recycling or, or repaired. But right now, removal from orbit is the option. We want to have anything uh, that we have inspected. Um, we, we've already placed a contract with, uh, with one company to deliver our equipment to its final orbit, taking it from the launch vehicle to a final orbit and using an orbital transfer vehicle. So we're seeing on-orbit services becoming a, a real thing, and we take advantage of those to provide 
you know, a, a lower cost solution for our customers, but also to take care of the orbit uh, and be mindful. Um, so yeah, we we look at that uh, quite carefully as how do we be a good, responsible actor in space? Now, Orbit Fab's also been getting a lot of attention from investors. You had uh, an A round investment, I think, earlier this year. Can you give us a ballpark of how much it's going to cost to put in the gas station in space? I say it because I like saying it. But also, you're refueling, um, what do we want to call it, shuttle. Mm-hmm. How much does that? generally speaking, going to cost to actually realize, to actually put it there, put that infrastructure up there. Can you, can you give us a number? Yeah, I can. The, um, the answer depends on what the architecture looks like. So when I talked before about having fuel shuttles and fuel depots in geostationary orbit and multiple low-Earth orbits, right? we're talking about the, the rollout over the next decade, and a lot of that will respond to customer demand. So there's capital requirements and then there's cash flow management. We don't need everything from investors, but we may need it from customers or from debt or like there's various sources. But it's going to cost hundreds of millions. Uh, this, is, this is not a cheap game. But we see the fuel shuttles as assets because they can be reused again and again for these deliveries. Um, whereas the fuel depots, once they're empty, we need to launch another tank of fuel, right? They're just big tanks of fuel. And so those are effectively disposable or in the future recyclable. But um, uh, yeah, so we, we need to keep launching those and those respond more to the demand that we see to keep, to keep an inventory replenished. Uh, so, and so far we've raised $30 million. Uh, we get about the same in, in government contract, uh, which has allowed us to deploy systems, get into production with the fueling ports, and get to the delivery for, for DIU in 2025. Uh, but as a startup company, always raising, we always have things that we'd like to expand the product line. Uh, we'd like to be offering uh, xenon and krypton and, and other fuels in orbit. Right now we're offering hydrazine, that's the, the place that we've started. So each of these steps will require uh, additional capital to make sure that technology works and to get it deployed in orbit. Now, as you are an established serial disruptor, what's your next target for disruption? Are you going to get back into mining? So OrbitFab is intentionally not an asteroid mining company. And while we created the company because we got such a strong response when we were talking to prospective customers about how much value this would create, um, it, this creates a market for asteroid mined material as a, a great sort of collateral Collateral damage is the wrong word. Collateral benefit. Collateral benefit. <laughs> Collateral value. There you go. Collateral um, value chain, actually. Yeah. And, and so hopefully this is creating an opportunity for asteroid mining and eventually the jobs in space. The infrastructure that can be built on, on a propellant supply is, is considerable. All of the satellite servicing business models really need a, a propellant supply. But Orbifab's goal is to become the chemical supply company in space. So we want to be a midstream and downstream chemicals company uh, owning not just storage and distribution, but also owning refineries in orbit so that we can take the material that's either a waste product from commercial space stations or an output from uh, lunar or moon-mined material or material that's lifted from Earth, which we can convert into any number of different products in orbit through chemical processes. So that's our 20-year goal is to become the biggest industrial chemicals company in orbit. Yeah, I've heard you say uh, earlier before we started recording about the importance of getting off Earth, about the importance of, of establishing a space economy 
in such a way that people are actually living up there. People are living, working, that people will be at the refinery, you know, not just for six months or a year tour, but, but they're for years, you know, possibly even having a family there. What is that vision and why do you think that's so important? Why, why do you think that this is where things should go? Well, if we go back 20, 25 years to, uh, to when I was thinking about my career and, and making these decisions that have led to this path, um, a, a lot of that thinking hasn't changed. We, we need permanent jobs in space um, if we're going to, to settle uh, off Earth, if we're going to settle space. And the paradigm shift that happens when you've got one job there, when you've got somebody that you don't want to bring back, and if you're, if you're in a profit-generating mode, and it costs money to bring somebody back, especially to retrain them. Um, you're losing productivity. You're you're losing all that capital. You'll pay them a bonus to stay there, right? So I, you could probably find somebody to work for free for the first year because going to space is cool. It's an adventure. They're going to be famous. The second year, you're going to have to pay them a big bonus to stay. I'll give you a million dollars if you stay the second year, but I'm probably saving $10 million. Right? The third year, I'll give you... Two or three million more, right? Just don't come home. The fourth year, I'll send some friends to to stay with you, right? And and the friend can be the farmer and they'll get you better food and, and what have you. I, I don't want Personal you to come back. Personal chef kind of comes to my mind first, but that's just me. There you go. So chef, plumber, electrician, roll out the carpet, massage the tourists, whatever it is, right? That's those skills. And then the, the export jobs from tourism, from entertainment content, helping Tom Cruise shoot a movie from um, manufacturing, keeping keeping the, uh, the manufacturing facilities running. The export jobs are going to then support internal economy jobs, where the economy I'm describing is the in-space economy. And so if you look at Earth, anywhere there's a job, there's a town. But you've got to have a job, like a mine site in the middle of Australia. It's desolate. There's no reason to live out there in your sane mind, except when there's valuable rocks under the ground to dig out. And then you find towns grow up. And the internal jobs can outweigh the, the export jobs by 10 to 1 or 100 to 1. But we need those export jobs to kickstart. And that's what we're looking at. And, and once you're there, once you're, you're committed to being in this place for years at a time, possibly for, the, for your, your, as a permanent place you're living for your, the rest of your life, then you start thinking about and investing in it and improving it in ways that otherwise you don't. And frankly, the people that are there will have the most experience of living and working in microgravity that anybody will have had, right? We're sitting here in 1G field. Everything that we design is biased to work in a 1G field. In space, if you're living in space, you can escape that bias and you'll start inventing and developing things that haven't been developed before. My favorite example is the toilets on the space station. Um, famously, they stink. They're terrible. But nobody's sat down in space or floated in space and tried to come up with a better solution. We try to develop the solutions using engineers who've only ever lived in a 1G field. I would like to have that per first permanent employee take their weekends, go down to the workbench, play around with some goo, figure out how to make a better toilet. That's a technical term, that goo. That's a technical <laughs> term. But that's just an example of, of the paradigm shift when we've got somebody permanently living in space. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. It's great to be talking to you. 
That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.